1: Hi guys, welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I'm Sean Hamilton, your host. Today we're talking to Yuval Taylor, co-author of Darkest America, Black Minstrelsy, From Slavery to Hip Hop. Yuval, welcome.
0: Thanks. Good to be there, Sean. Great, great.
1: Looking forward to talking to you. Uh, I guess first, tell us a little bit about your background and um, how, how you came to write the book.
0: Well, I've been, I've been writing about popular music um, after my... I co-wrote a book called Faking It, The Quest for Authenticity in Popular Music, uh, a few years back. And after that, I was doing a blog about, you know, various things in music. And one of the things um, I posted on the blog was Ethel Waters performing um, Underneath the Harlem Moon, which was a, a pretty racist song written in 1930 which she completely transformed. She performed it in a movie called Rufus Jones for President, also with Sammy Davis Jr. in 1931 or 1932. And she rewrote all the lyrics and made this racist song about how Harlem is just like a plantation into a song of triumph um, and just turned everything on its head. And so that got me interested in seeing how African-Americans – deal with racist material in general. Um, Other performers were doing that same song without changing the lyrics or changing the lyrics only a little bit. They were taking all these different approaches to it. Um, And so that got me, you know, looking back on African-Americans performing racist material, I knew that there were plenty of African-Americans who performed in minstrel shows, and I was wondering, well, how did they deal with the racist material in minstrel shows? Did they transform it? Did they signify it? and um, and I, I found out that many of them were just playing this racist material totally straight up, um, without without making any changes. Uh, they doing exactly what the uh, the white minstrels were doing. So it, it inspired me to to dig further, and I contacted Jake because um, I know he's a he's a real expert on African American comedy, and I asked him if he wanted to write this book with me and. He said, yeah, let's do it.
1: Got you. Got you. So just for, what exactly is a
0: minstrel show? How do you define it? Well, a minstrel show is a comic performance performed in blackface um, by a group um, of at least four people, but it can be as large as a hundred. Um, and It replays conventional stereotypes of African-Americans in some way or another. Um, And it's almost always for a mixed audience, both blacks and whites. Okay, got it.
1: And now there's certain stock characters in a minstrel show, right? What what are some of those?
0: Yes. I mean, they're, I mean, Sambo, um, Zip Coon. You can talk about these characters in various ways. But uh, in general, you're talking about, um, happy, contented blacks on this, on a plantation setting. Um, you're talking about, um, people who are lazy, who do buffoonish comedy, um, exaggerated features, um, like to eat, like to, uh like fried chicken, like watermelon, playing dice. Um, It's just, you know, the the same kind of stereotypes that whites have purveyed for centuries about African-Americans. That's what you're going to see in the minstrel show. Right.
1: And now in the early minstrel shows, they were all white, right? Did they ever tackle subjects that didn't really involve um, race or racism?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, the white performers tackled all sorts of subjects. The minstrel show was a space where they could parody anything they wanted. So they parodied opera, they parodied opera. Um, You know, they parodied Shakespeare, they uh, parodied high society, they parodied all sorts of things. So it wasn't a it wasn't always focused on the plantation and always focused on, on African American characters, even though for the most part, they still wore blackface while doing those parodies and talked in this fake dialect. Um, their subject matters really varied.
1: Okay. Now, just out of curiosity, why, why did they, why did they feel the need to wear blackface if they're looking at sort of other subjects like opera or
0: something like that? um, Blackface became the convention one of the defining conventions of the show um, because the early minstrel shows um, centered around the old plantation and centered around uh, people in blackface wearing rags and performing uh, banjo and bones and um, so that became the, the focus of the minstrel show but after it became established and a big success, they felt free to do other stuff as well. But um, I think it probably would have been confusing or too much work to all of a sudden take off your blackface for one particular skit and then put it back on for another. Okay, that's my guess. Okay. Got
1: you. now did did the Sambo character exist prior to the minstrel show? In in
0: any? Oh, absolutely. You've got in the 18th century, you've got blackface performers. Um, in circuses, um, on ships, um, on various stages, um, doing all sorts of things, and and you've got early plays, 19th, 18th century plays with characters named Sambo. Um, so that goes back a ways. The minstrel show didn't actually exist until the 1840s. Mm-hmm. So, and but the Sambo
1: character, even in that. Earlier tradition was always a black character that fitted certain certain stereotypes. Yes, so
0: absolutely. What yeah. What, yeah. Was,
1: what was Frederick Douglass's reaction to the minstrel show?
0: Frederick Douglass was appalled by minstrelsy in general, and he had a rather specific. Um, he he wrote about a very early African American minstrel troupe that, um, and this was well before the Civil War. They were doing white minstrel shtick, not very successfully, I may add, um, and touring. Um, and Frederick Douglass said, you know, it's time, for, um, it's time for a theatrical troupe to portray African-Americans as they really are, not as these buffoons. Um, and was, he was calling for a better representation of his race. At the same time, he was grateful to see African-American performers perform at all. But um, he had a he had pretty strong feelings against minstrelsy. Okay. Okay.
1: Um, the VA, the Virginia Minstrels, was that? Mm-hmm. Who were they again?
0: Now this was a group of four whites. Um, I believe one was a Southerner. The rest were Northerners. I can't remember uh, exactly, but they they originated the minstrel show. They were the first. Performers to call themselves minstrels. They were the first performers to play instruments during their show. Um, I mean, blackface performers, and so they changed the minstrel show. I mean, they they basically originated it, um, and uh, and um, at about I, I, they didn't they didn't last very long. I think they only lasted a year or two, but. They were they were kind of the uh, the ones that made the minstrel show what it became.
1: Okay, understood. Um, now, at, while the minstrel, so I guess after emancipation, you start seeing blacks performing in minstrel shows. Mm-hmm. Um, what there were other kinds of black entertainment though, right? You listed a few of them: jubilees, black theater. How did those compare to the minstrel show? Like what made them different? Well, there
0: was a there were there were a number of different theatrical troupes. The most prominent is the Higher Sisters, and they performed uplifting drama um, centered around African Americans. Um, there was um, the Fisk Jubilee Singers and other Jubilee groups who performed spirituals in a very cultured, high-class way. Um, there were black opera singers and pianists. Um, so there were, there were a lot of different things that African-Americans were doing in terms of performance. Uh, but Minstrelsy was by far the most successful.
1: Got it. Now, There was one guy you mentioned, I forgot his name. But he actually was a black um, actor who had to pretend to be white to play blackface so do you do you remember that, that
0: yeah you're thinking of william henry Lane he was uh his name was his nickname was Master Juba he was the first african American blackface performer to be a real success um, His story is that um he was a great dancer in New York uh and only a kid really I think he was in his teens um, and Barnum, who would later become famous as Barnum, for Barnum and Bailey Circus. Well, P.T. Barnum had this show, and his lead dancer, it was a blackface show, his lead dancer, John Diamond, was unable to make it. And so he asked Master Juba if, uh, if he would fill in, and he painted him in blackface so that people wouldn't be able to tell that he was really black. Because if they'd known that there was a black person on stage, they would have um, asked for their money back or rioted or something. I mean, New York audiences were not ready to see black performers on stage at this point. This was in the 1840s. Um, well, Master Juba was such an amazing dancer that it didn't take long before he revealed himself for who he really was. He had contests with John Diamond. You know, so there was a black performer versus a white performer. Um, and sometimes he won those contests in front of white judges, in front of white audiences. Um, and he went on to be one of the, the greatest dancers of his day. He toured the world, and um, Charles Dickens wrote about him. Um, but he died quite young. I think he was only in his 20s when he died. Okay. Um, another question I have for you um,
1: why was it so important for the the minstrel promoters to argue that the the minstrel show was an authentic representation representation of black
0: life? You made that point in the book. It was a selling point. It it differentiated them from the white troops. So um, Americans have always been attracted to um, things that build, you know, performances that build themselves as authentic in some way or another. And this was just one added reason, one added incentive to go see this minstrel show. It's like, hey, we've got real blacks from the plantation, not just whites dressed as them. You know, this is going to be different. This is going to be better. It's going to be cooler. I mean, African-Americans had, even back then, a reputation for being fantastic entertainers. And so, you know this was just another aspect that, that could help sell tickets. It didn't mean that they tried especially hard to duplicate any kind of um, performances that they might have put on while they were slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just meant that they build themselves as true plantation slaves so that they could sell more tickets. Yeah. Keeping it real.
1: Yeah. That's what, what we call it now, then.
0: Yep. Um,
1: just out of, uh, another thing I was kind of curious about in in your studies, did you, is there any equivalent to minstrelsy and say any other ethnic comedy, Jewish comedy,
0: for example? Um, I think you know, the the, the, the thing is that in other ethnic comedy um, all, you know, all ethnicities play on the traits, on stereotypes. But what I think the difference is that African-Americans have played precisely the stereotypes that were used against them the most, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas Jews did not. I mean, Jewish comedy does not really deal with the whole stereotype of the master of the world's finances or, you know, those kinds of representations that have been used to or, you know, the the Jews who, who kill Christian babies. That's not part of Jewish humor. And those are the stereotypes that have been used to target Jews. Um, whereas African-Americans do use those same stereotypes that are used to target them they use in their comedy. So it's a little edgier, you'd have to say. Um, it's a little bit closer to the edge. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the other thing that comes to mind is um, in South Africa, you've got the coloureds putting on the coon carnival uh, on New Year's Day in Cape Town every year, um, where they put on white face and dress like plantation slaves. Um, which is, you know, so there's a there's a kind of parallel version of minstrelsy in a totally other culture, but that. That the Coon Carnival arose because of a visit of a minstrel troupe in the 19th century, a black minstrel troupe in the 19th century to Cape Town, where the Cape Townians were so impressed by how African-Americans had been emancipated from slavery that they adopted the traits that they saw in that minstrel show. So that's a curious twist.
1: And who was Burt Williams, and why was he significant?
0: Burt Williams is, was one of the greatest African-American comedians. Um, he was huge in the 1900s and 1910s and 1920s. He uh, transformed minstrelsy because um, he wore blackface but instead of and, and spoken dialect, but instead of um, being outrageously buffoonish and, and wildly exaggerated. Um, he took a very subtle approach and portrayed the downtrodden African American, the, the one who's always being put upon, um, the one who's suffering terrible misfortune and use, and he used pathos in his comedy so that, uh, he would make his audience weep as well as laugh. Um, he was a Piero figure and, uh, had a, um, an, an, an incredible impact on American entertainment. He was like, you know, in terms of recording artists, he was one of the three highest paid recording artists of his day. And I'm not just talking about black recording artists. I'm talking about recording artists, period. He was certainly the most popular comedian of his time, black or white. Um, and so he had a tremendous impact on, on, um, a New York culture and, and American culture in general. Um, but no one really precisely followed in his footsteps. No one really took his art of pathos um, and transformed it into something else. That, you know, uh, So in a way, it's, uh, I don't know how much impact he actually had um, though he was very famous during his day. Okay.
1: Now how, how did he have a hard time reconciling sort of the, the stereotype with the more, um, you know, I guess you could say socially relevant
0: portrait of the downtrodden man. Well, he was, a, he, he had a, he had an interesting take. He was a West Indian um, and he was also very well educated and spoke um you know, spoke, you know, spoke extremely well. He's, he was, he was a, um, he he considered himself a a little bit distinct from the African American, the average African American um, whom he studied a great deal in order to do his act. He, um, so he, and and he made no bones about that distinction. I mean, everybody knew that this was Burt Williams and that the performer, he played on stage was absolutely nothing like who he really was um, and he said that he felt liberated when he put on blackface because then he could become this other this completely different person um so uh so that 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 i don't i don't think he felt uncomfortable about doing that um He worked with Willie with um, a guy named uh, William Walker, who hated blackface and never wore it. Um, And they had this this duo act called Two Real Coons. So he was exposed to um, the kind of anti-minstrelsy feeling that was prevalent at the time. But he still insisted on wearing blackface because that was the only way he could really portray his character. Um, I think that he did not like the conventional minstrel act because he didn't do it. He didn't perform the songs that Al Jolson performed. Um, He didn't sing um, songs like Waiting for the Robert E. Lee. Um, He wrote his own material or had um, other people write his material for him that departed a little bit from what the conventional minstrel and coon songs of the day were, um, just to fit that character that he played. Um, And he was a very dignified person and did not consider his act undignified at all. He dignified minstrelsy by evoking pathos and not just laughter. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you just, you compared his work to the Al Jolson songs or Waiting for Robert E. Lee. What, What were those songs about?
0: Oh, those songs were about happy plantation darkies, you know, um, those were really popular. They, you know, you, you probably know some of them. I mean, Sweet Georgia Brown Mm -hmm. had its origins in precisely that, that kind of minstrel, uh, thing. Um, Louis Armstrong's theme song, uh, When It's Sleepy Time Down South was, uh, Another one of these happy darkies on the plantation songs, and he sang it at every single concert he gave and and that was he 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 sang it well over a thousand times um, and that song was written by African Americans um, and performed by african Americans and that was basically the standard portrayal um, and that's not the kind of material that Burt Williams did at all. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Louis Armstrong, he never performed in blackface, right? I, I can't remember if I read that in the book or not.
0: No, he never performed in blackface except when he was Zulu king. When he marched with the Zulu crew in New Orleans oh, yeah. um, in the 1940s or 30s, I can't remember now, uh, he wore blackface then because all the Zulus wore blackface.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, And he was very proud of it, too.
1: This, describe the evolution of the of the Zulu crew. Um, I know they went from embodying some pretty racist stereotypes to, to changing over the years, right?
0: Well, they haven't changed that much. I mean, they started out... Um, they got their inspiration from a skit about cannibals that they saw in 1909, I believe. Yeah. Um, and so they... Uh, the Zulu crew in New Orleans, they paint their faces black with white circles around their mouths and eyes, and they wear uh, Afro wigs, and occasionally they'll have a bone through their nose. They wear grass skirts, um, and so they basically embody the caricature of the cannibal that has existed since probably the 18th century. Uh, even to this day, and even to this day, yeah. And they still perform; they still dress that way. Um, you can see them on uh, Mardi Gras Day parading. There's there's a the big parade on Mardi Gras Day down in New Orleans, um, and some of them have changed the costume a little bit to represent more fierce African tribes. You know, they'll they'll put on more uh, kind of war paint instead of blackface, mm-hmm. um, or wear more elaborate. African kind of costumes. But the majority of them are pretty simple, basic um, Zulu, uh, the, the same kind of Zulu caricature that's that's always been that way. Um, but the meaning has changed. I mean, uh, people never associate Zulu with cannibals or with minstrelsy anymore down there. They just associate it with tradition. I mean, the Zulu crew has been around for over 100 years, and People just associate it with that. Now, there were some major changes in the 60s. Uh, the Urban League and the NAACP got on their case. Um, this was in the days of the militant black power. Um, and wearing blackface was just not acceptable. Um, and the Zulu crew almost vanished in the 1960s. They went for several years without wearing blackface. Um, and they had to be protected from other African-Americans by the police. Um, and uh, and there was a split in the crew it was a really hard time but um, by the 70s they, they managed to get themselves back up and became this totally establishment institution and they're very much an accepted part of the New Year's Day festivities unlike the Mardi Gras Indians who have always kept themselves on the edge and have always had this very rebellious character
1: mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier a coon song. What is a coon song?
0: Well, uh, the coon songs were the hottest thing in popular music from about 1890 to 1910. And this was... um, Coon songs were written by blacks and by whites, performed by blacks and by whites, sold via sheet music. Um, And they were funny songs, always comic, about a character an urban African-American character called a coon, who, um, was, uh, something of an outlaw, you know, played dice a lot, but also, you know, used a razor, um, was a libertine and, um, was kind of sexed up. Um, and, uh, It was all about his adventures. Sometimes he got into, he had, you know, he had fun adventures. Sometimes he got into scrapes. Um, But it was a kind of idea, a kind of liberating um, genre because these coon characters could be as wild and crazy as they wanted to be in these songs. Um, And at the same time, they embodied. Stereotypes, racist stereotypes that were vicious in nature. So, you know, it, it was again, like most of American culture, it was a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. And now, so
1: the, the coon and the way you describe it and the zip coon are the same. Is that the same character essentially?
0: Uh, it, no, the coon is the coon and the Coonsong song is a development I mean you don't have zip coon starts out as planned as a plantation as a plantation character who is country through and through whereas the coon and the coon song is much more urban mm-hmm. and it reflects the migration of African Americans from country to the cities um, also the coon song Coonsongs songs mostly were written in New York City you know so they didn't. Um, well, I guess a lot of minstrelsy came from New York City, <laughs> um, but but gen- in general, it was less of a country thing; it was more of an urban thing.
1: Got you, got you. Um, Well, obviously, that's that's what a lot of people compare gangster rapper gangster rappers to, and mm-hmm. we'll come to that in a minute. But two songs I want to talk to you about, coon songs. One, all coons look alike to me. What what was the theme of that? That was the most popular one, right?
0: Yeah, that was by Ernest Hogan when he wrote it. A- I mean, Ernest Hogan was a huge minstrel star and then became a huge uh, coon song star. Um, And I believe he was the one who was billed as the unbleached American. Um, And uh, he wrote it, um, all coons alike to me in the song is the refrain of a woman who says to him, all coons look alike to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's not saying all coons look alike. Mm-hmm. He's saying, this is what this woman said to me, which is kind of not a good thing to say. So if you just take the title, it sounds like a, a much worse song than it is, but it was a huge hit. If you, if, there, there are a number of versions of it, but some of them are, and most of them performed by whites in, a, in kind of a faux black dialect. But, there's an energy to this song, and a fun to it that's that's really hard to get away from. I mean, almost all the recorded performances of it are are have this incredible energy to it, to them. It's really it's an amazing song.
1: Mm-hmm. What about um, "Every Nation Has a Flag Except the Coon"?
0: I would I don't know that one.
1: Okay, okay. I read that, a, no. <laughs> yeah, I read an article by uh, Minkin, um H. L. Minkin. Yeah. Um one of, one of the points he made in he mentioned that song in particular, but he also made the point that the Coon song actually helped uh, popularize the term Coon. Did you find that in your research also?
0: Well, I know that the the word the, the term Coon as applied to African Americans was not as vicious a term as it is today. Mm-hmm. And I've read that it wasn't until like around 1905 that it became a really vicious term. Um, so, you know, I don't know exactly how true that is, but yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Um, Lincoln Perry, why is he significant?
0: Well, step and Fetch, it was a huge, huge star of the screen. Um, and, um, He's significant because he he embodied the stereotype of the ultra-lazy, ultra-slow uh, worker who never lifted a finger unless he absolutely had to and did anything he could to get out of doing a day's worth of work. Um, but he was a sly figure, too, in, in many of the films where he would mutter something underneath his breath that would give away that he was his own man. And he got away with a lot of stuff. Um, so he was extremely popular. Um, but Step and Fetch it now has a reputation. You know, if you call someone a Step and Fetch it, uh, it's a really bad thing to call someone, you know? Oh,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and I think the reason for that is that in part due to his popularity and because in part because he was such a buffoon and in part because he was so incredibly unthreatening he was the the biggest African American star in Hollywood for decades and no one anyone who tried any other African Americans who tried to make it in Hollywood were always told to portray the same kind of person as Stephen Mm Fetchett. which is really hard you know it's tough on a whole race when you're characterized in that way
1: now, was he, he was never in blackface, though, right?
0: No, he did not wear blackface.
1: So by this point, we're, we're away from actual blackface, but the menstrual tradition still sort of carries on in some of these characters.
0: That's right. Yeah. That's right.
1: Uh, Amos and Andy, what, what was the significance of that show?
0: Well, it starts out as a radio show. Um, and uh, that's done by two whites, who are in, Who are blackface performers um, they're from the blackface tradition um, and it is a kind of uh, soap opera serial comedy show where um, the characters uh, get into trouble but they're, the plot really develops from week to week I mean from show to show, day to day it was by far the most popular radio show in America's history Um, And then they decide to make it into a TV show and they want to get real African-American actors. So they get Spencer Williams, Tim Moore, and um, I'm blanking um, who played Andy. Um, But they get this really talented group of actors um, and these actors ban Gosden and Corell, the, uh, the white actors they ban them from the set so that um, they're trying to create a real african American show what what happens with with the TV show is that it becomes dominated by kingfish played by Tim Moore who is totally um, a, you know just a really hammy actor and lays up the character to the hill very funny but people really don't want to see that. It, 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 situates African-Americans as, you know, this is the only African-American presence on TV and you, and it's dominated by this, this, uh, this kind of buffoonish guy who's always rolling his eyes and, and, uh, is always scheming for money and never actually getting any. And, you know, it's, it's really pretty, pretty problematic for this to be the only representation of African-Americans on TV. And so the NAACP succeed in getting it off the air, uh, although then it's syndicated and it's on the air some more. And it also becomes a symbol of bad representations of African Americans on TV. You know, anything after Amos and Andy, any any representation of African Americans on TV that is considered bad becomes tarred with the Amos and Andy brush.
1: Right, right. That's, that's how I would have heard it described. Yeah. How did, uh, how did Steppen and Fetch It, Amos and Andy, just the minstrel, minstrel tradition, in as a whole affect comedians like Bill Cosby?
0: Well, Bill Cosby was reacting against the uh, that tradition, and he makes that pretty clear. Um, he is trying to present dignified African Americans, trying to make comedy that's um, not about the stereotypes uh especially these particular stereotypes he takes every opportunity he can get to speak against the minstrel tradition and uh you know and he carries on in that in that way he speaks against he speaks out against hip-hop because he sees it as part of that tradition too mm-hmm. so i think that minstrel tradition really did affect and influence bill cosby in, in a lot of ways and but it, they're all it's a it's all a reaction against it that kind of influence and so as we as we move
1: through the 60s 70s we come to another show another um sort of someone channeling the menstrual tradition good times with jimmy walker first question i i was shocked when i read in the book that um jimmy walker was at one point the official comedian of the black panther party <laughs> how did how did that come about any idea
0: now you're gonna have to ask jake yeah that, I don't know. <laughs>
1: it just was one of those things. I just it just jumped out of me. I couldn't believe it. Um, what was the significance of uh, Jimmy Walker? Good Times that whole dynamic.
0: Well, I think there you had one. I think you, you've got an example there of how one performer can really change a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Good Good Times was one of those Norman Lear spinoffs from All in the Family. Um, and the Jeffersons and, you know, all the other ones, uh, all those other Norman Lear shows. Um, and, um, it, it takes on a very different dynamic because of, of Jimmy Walker's, you know, very minstrel-like performance. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, and you know, the, the other actors on the show were horrified that the show was moving in this direction and couldn't really do anything about it because he was just so popular. Mm-hmm. Whites like to see that stuff <laughs> um, so
1: so hip hop sort of comes to the fore in the early eighties and we start seeing sort of new maybe versions of Mistral C, but they're, they're, they're different how, how how do you distinguish between say the zip coon and the and the gangster rapper
0: Part of it is intent the gangster rap is. Uh, it's a threatening music and it's, it's funny in some ways, but it's not meant to be that funny. It's really, uh, it's a very different kind of, um, intention. Whereas the Kuhn song was essentially a comic song. Um, and, uh, so, so there's a there's a difference in, in intent. There's a difference in degree. Mm-hmm. Violence in Kunzangs was not that bad. The violence in Gangster Rap is is just out of this world. Um, and um, the so Gangster Rap's a very I think I think it has few parallels, precise parallels in American culture. Mm-hmm. It is a very distinctive form. Um, so it has been labeled minstrelsy by a lot of, uh, cultural commentators and compared to Amos and Andy and what have you. But Jake and I think it's, it's of a different degree. Um, and I think that, I think I, you know, the, just at the very most basic level, it's, it's the, the intent of the performers, whether it's to just provoke laughs or do something quite different. Mm -hmm.
1: And so in in the Coon song the the Coon with the straight razor
0: was that wasn't meant to intimidate? I don't think so. No. That was that was a really all in fun. It was just part of the comedy. Um now there was um in almost all minstrel like material there's the the setup, the the well, let's put it this way that any any performance Imagines a, there's an imaginary performance space around the performer and the performance space in minstrelsy as in the coon song um, and in rap music as well is a space of, of blacks only where there are no whites um, in, um, so in the minstrel, on the minstrel stage there was never a white character uh, the, the slave owners weren 't there. The policemen were not there in the Kuhn song, mm-hmm. so this space this performance space um, was a space that was liberating for the performers and for the audiences because these were oppressed people who could feel in the, while during watching these performers or, or singing these songs, they could feel like they were free from oppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Minstrels get to eat as much as they want They get to work as little as they want um, they're having a great time mm-hmm. uh, and the same thing is true with the um, with the coons and the coon song and um, to a degree the same thing is true with many of the gangster rappers mm-hmm. um, so there, there is that that's where that's where the similarities are.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, a character like Flavor Flav—he was someone you you guys wrote about a lot. Yeah, describe the, um, I guess, the, the minstrel controversy as it as it involves Flavor Flav.
0: Well, Flavor Flav is—you know—he his very minstrelish, uh, buffoonish act seemed to have a political. Um, bent when he was with public enemy Mm -hmm. um he was parodying minstrelsy in a way um and it looked like he was making fun of minstrelsy and he was making fun of um the whole buffoonish tradition Mm -hmm. um and it was very effective the way he paired with uh chakti um he provided some comic relief from the from Chuck D's anger, but at the same time, he was angry too in some ways. And um, and you know, it, it really worked. Um, when he went out on his own, he the the edge was gone. You know, without Chuck D to be with and to to contrast with, he was just a, a buffoon in in the same way that the the great minstrel performers of the 19th century were. And um, there was nothing uh, dignified about what he did anymore. Um, And uh, so, and I think that again, I think that he, so he basically embodied all the negative stereotypes that whites have about African-Americans and have had for centuries without Lending any kind of irony or, or signifying to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, define signifying, just just for us.
0: Well, it's 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 um it's playing off stereotypes in a in a kind of sly and clever way. Um, there's a lot of ways to do to do that, um, but uh, and then signifying has a long tradition, but I. I don't know.
1: I, uh, I think I get what you mean. It's sort of like you—you you sort of poke fun at the stereotype itself. That's so right. it, yeah, you, you can
0: turn it, to, it on its head.
1: Yeah. yeah, got you. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, Spike Lee bamboozled. He he tackled the um, the portrayal of blacks in in the media, and he was very specific in labeling labeling a lot of characters, minstrels, and that kind of thing. How? What does he get? sort of historically right? What does he get wrong in, in your view?
0: Um, he he tends to lump black minstrels and white minstrels together which I think is not um, totally right. Um, you know, in that Montage sequence in Bamboozled. He he puts black minstrels in with white representations of of coons and pickaninnies, which um, muddies the water somewhat. Um, he, um, and the and the performers and the performers sleep and eat in in the the Manton show that he puts on in Bamboozled. They don't they don't get all the minstrels. Routines quite right. They they make a few, a few mistakes, um, and I don't think Spike Lee sees anything good that has ever come out of the minstrel tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that it's a dignified tradition in any way or that it deserves to be um, applauded, <laughs> but um, there are you know certain aspects of it that that are very rich and that have proven intensely satisfying to a great number of audiences and performers. Um, And instead of really signifying on that tradition, Spike Lee's attacking it. Um, And Bamboozled is is an extremely angry film. I think it may be his angriest film ever. Mm -hmm. Um, And... uh, as as a result, it it works. I mean, it's it's an <laughs> incredible work of art. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's it deals with. I don't think it attempts to deal with minstrelsy in a fair and balanced way. It's a real attack on the tradition.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, how did minstrelsy further art, music,
0: um, acting in America? Well, it gave African-Americans tremendous opportunities to to be entertainers, you know, um, without the minstrel show, I don't think African-American entertainers would have had as many opportunities to perform. Um, So it gave us a lot of a lot of great performers, a lot of great art, um, a lot of great songs came out of the tradition. Um, a lot of careers were made so uh, and I think just providing African American audiences and performers with this liberating space I think helped them keep their sanity in the midst of terrible oppression
1: what's the danger of say because one, one point you made in the book was about how the the new understanding of, of minstrelsy sort of conflates everything that portrays blacks in a negative way as, as minstrelsy, basically what's the danger with that kind of characterization?
0: Well, um, basically what you're doing is you're weaponizing the word minstrelsy. And when you do that, it changes history. Uh, if you're saying that gangster rappers are minstrels, that changes what minstrels
1: were,
0: mm-hmm. um, and that's a dangerous thing to mess with history like that. Uh, I, you know, I don't think we want to do that. Um, with, for example, uh, the word minstrel has become so negative um, and so uh, and such a weapon that a and it, there was this exhibit devoted to a hundred years of the Zulu crew uh, in New Orleans at the presbyterian and, and uh in 2009 and the word minstrel was never used in that entire exhibit mm-hmm. uh, even though the zulu crew started as basically a, a minstrel inspired routine um so because using that word is just it's a, it's a bad word yeah um and so that th- what happens when you just call anything you know any negative stereotype of African Americans, if you call it minstrelsy, it just means that minstrelsy becomes um, almost ahistorical. It becomes this uh, denial of everything. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So this is a, this
1: might be a kind of a strange question, but with hip hop, for example, we have sur- we have subgenres. We have um, conscious rap. We have gangster rap, that kind of thing. Was was there, were there black, like, conscious minstrels, you know what I mean? Like, when when it was still blackface and, and that kind of thing?
0: You mean, did minstrelsy ever take on uh, a... Dignified sort of
1: presentation of black life? Or not non-stereotypical presentation of black... I, I mean, I know we talked about uh, Burt's um well, sorry, I forgot Bert Williams, Williams his, yeah, yeah, and his sort of using pathos and 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 really elevating like the art form itself, but was did any of it portray blacks as I don't know, middle class or you know in, in the same way that the more um uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example but you understand the question though,
0: yeah, well, I don't. You're not going to get the Huxtables on a minstrel show. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think so. I don't. I, but on the other hand, um, there was a recognition in some of the uh, material around slavery. Both in the white minstrel show and in the black minstrel show, you get slaves who are being torn from their families and um, subjected to cruelty and there's a recog- and or, or running away there's a recognition that slavery is cruel um, and this is in the you know before emancipation the pre-emancipation white minstrel show mm-hmm. has songs and routines about the cruelty of slavery mm-hmm. um, so there is that um, but I don't really think that minstrelsy is, is the ideal performance site for socially conscious material. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there's, there's quite a gulf there. Also minstrelsy has always been about low comedy, not sophisticated comedy. Uh, that's just one of its characteristics, uh, from its, from its births. Okay.
1: Okay. That makes sense. Um, I think that's it. Um, we covered a, covered a lot of material, I think. I did. I, I enjoyed the book. I thought it was, um, I'm somebody who, I love bamboozled. Um, I have a lot of problems with gangster rap. So <laughs> it never, um, you know, I've read Stanley Crouch's take on hip hop. He's probably harsher than I am, but mm-hmm. um, but I still sympathize with a lot of it. But I, I think your, your, your book definitely takes the minstrel tr- tradition and sort of puts it in a historical perspective which you know, I, I think is important. Um, thanks. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Uh, guys, uh, you've been listening to uh, New Books Network, African American Studies, um, and our guest has been Yuval Taylor. Um, thanks a lot for listening and um, take care.